0: This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. On this episode of Fresh Starts and New Beginnings, Huntsville welcomes a new information center connecting those suffering from addiction with the care they need.
1: When someone who is struggling with substance use disorder or addiction, that window is very small, they come here, everything's going to be here for them. We
0: meet a bio cleanup business owner who says the job requirements involve more than just completing certifications.
2: Strong stomach for sure, a sense of empathy. You need to be a people person rather than being just a business person and saying, let me just clean this up for you and get out of there.
0: Brett Tannehill talks to members of the Tennessee Valley Community Garden Association, and the Solid Waste Disposal Authority of Huntsville tells us how they are encouraging better recycling in our community. That's next on the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Katie Gannaway with Brett Tannehill Producing. It's a brand new decade which creates the opportunity to do away with bad old habits and make a change of scenery in one's life. Someone you'll meet this hour has kicked his bad habit, and he's using his story to help others kick theirs. Some of us pursue the desire to start a career that helps make the lives of our neighbors a bit brighter, and for one of our guests, a bit cleaner, too. And for some, it's time to take the old and transform it into something completely new, like our recycling being turned into steam for Redstone Arsenal. But first, we hear about heritage seeds and the rebirth of the flowerbed. Brett Tannehill brings us the following conversation with the Tennessee Valley Community Garden Association about the 8th annual Community Seed Swap, Friday night at 6 at the Church of the Nativity in downtown Huntsville. An event where green-thumbed folks meet to help each other to conserve seeds and to yield a more diverse harvest.
3: And with the seed swap tomorrow, it's a great chance for people to come and trade their seeds and also get new things to bring in to their slate at their Mm -hmm. house. For people who haven't been to the seed swap before, how how do you do it? Do you need seeds? Would you just walk up to people and start trading seeds? How how does this work exactly?
4: Well, we have a room designated for the seed swapping, (laughs) if you want to call it that. Um, And basically, people just... Go in the room, set their seed down, look at everybody else's seeds. You don't have to bring seeds. Um, we do get a big seed packet donation from a seed company um, that people can take home, a few packets if they'd like. So, And also the Sand Mountain Seed Bank, who um, we host the seed swap for. It's a benefit for the Sand Mountain Seed Bank. Um, they do bring some seeds to share as well.
3: What have you all picked up? Any any great seeds
5: that you were really surprised about?
4: Mm. I have so many, it's hard to even
5: <laughs> Lee? The, um, I'm trying to think of, there's always some nice tomatoes, um, that um, yeah. some interesting varieties of tomatoes. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I guess, heirloom seeds have become pretty popular. Um, but, you know, you, you hang out with the, the seed bank and like it, it's that on steroids, right? You have some really interesting named uh, tomatoes or there's uh, melons. Um, peas that we've had. We grew out some field peas Mm -hmm. uh, recently.
4: There was some okra that I got from them a few years ago. The variety is called blonde, and it's just a lighter green okra. And um, that one, I've grown that for a a few years.
3: So what is it about gardening that both of you enjoy so much?
4: I think it's just... Mostly just having a connection to the earth, and also I'm I'm really into nutrition and health, so I eat a lot of—I'm I'm plant-based. My diet is plant-based, so I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables primarily, um, so just knowing that I can grow my own— um, is important to me, and also
3: so for you. There's a lot of utility in it. It's not yeah. just for show. It's an actual
4: yes, and, but also um, it's stress relief. It's really good stress relief, like being out in the garden, being out in nature. So that's another aspect that is is important to me.
5: Lee, it's definitely stress relieving. Um, I I like a lot of the the, the manual labor involved in being able to like build beds and and do you know like make uh, rain barrels, and I, I like doing a lot of that, but there's also just a – I've grown up in Alabama my whole life. My whole family have been farmers. My dad's a nurseryman, um, and it's just something that almost, always kind of seems as a, an extension of who I am, and so it's – you can't not have a garden. So I just – it's a little bit of everything, I guess.
3: And we've covered the seed swap the past couple of years at least and done PSAs and that sort of thing, and the turnouts to the swaps seems – I was surprised the first time; it was enormous. There were so many people enthused about this. Um, why do you think people care so much about gardening and getting together for the seed swap as well?
5: I think it's a. I think it's a couple of things. I think the um, one. The I mean, the whole thing is a benefit for the Sand Mountain Seed Bank, and and Dove and Lawrence and and Russell um, and Charlotte are just. I mean, they are. They kind of, you know, just really. Um, uh, just I don't know how to I don't know how to explain it they 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 just shine with this essence of of authenticity and um and so they and when you hear them talk about the seeds and the passion they right. have, like it it's it's really contagious. and um and so there's this idea that, you know, I, there's a lot of um progression in in the, the monocultured and um, industrialized agriculture. And so I think a lot of people, you know, whether you agree with it or not, at least can step back and take a check and realize kind of where we've come from as far as growing out seeds and saving seeds and the history behind them. And so that, in one case, I think is what brings a lot of people out. I think the um, you know, that it's it's fun. You're around a bunch of like-minded people. You know, we have, you know, Mad Maltz and all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, food donors and bands playing, and it's just – it's festive. It's kind of what you expect. It's like a nice big garden party, and it's just fun. It's a nice fun party, and there's seeds, and there's good people. And if you're into it, you're going to be surrounded by like 100 people that are into it, so it's just fun.
3: And this idea of the tradition passing along knowledge – um, we've heard a lot of stories about that in the past coverage that we've done. And my favorite thing to hear is how people connect with past family members and, and things of that nature. And you mentioned that um, you've, your family has been in farming and, and landscaping uh, nurseries and that sort of thing. What sort of tips have you gathered for yourself that you put into play today with your gardening?
5: A lot has changed a lot has changed in in the way that my my grandparents gardened in versus the way we garden you know I mean mm-hmm. the uh there's just it's hard to it's in some cases even hard to compare um
4: well we garden organically we don't use any um, synthetic pesticides or fertilizers back in the day your family probably used you know seven dust and that kind of thing
5: for sure the um yeah. but I mean again it was just it was you had a tractor you tilled and uh, but there's still things that we have learned, you know, and, you know, like understanding when to grow things and um, trying to just rack my brain on, there's obviously some things that we that we still do.
4: I think maybe, maybe nowadays people are starting to realize how important it is to treat the soil well. I think in the past, the soil was kind of um, exploited and not really, people didn't really know how to like replenish so much and they didn't really appreciate the soil web and the all the, you know, the the fungals, you know, activity that happens and the bacterial activity that happens in the soil. Um, and I think people are starting to realize how important that is for their plants to be healthy. Um, so that's that's personally why we don't use pesticides or synthetic fertilizers because it's just not good on the soil. Yeah, we,
3: that's, that's one of the things that I was always taught first off is the if you're starting out, get a soil test. Know exactly oh, kind of yeah. what, you're, what, you're, what you're working yeah. with. If you're starting in a, a brand new area, know, know, what's, know what's under there. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned some of the activities that you'll have at the Seed Swap. You'll have like live music and refreshments. And you're also encouraging people to share their own seed stories, which our community newsroom is going to um, be kind of wandering through and recording and, and that sort of thing. Uh, tell us a little bit about this idea of seed stories
4: we're wanting to invite people to share a significant story about seed that they've been saving over the years. Um, We'd, you know, like to know what the history of the seed is, why it's significant to them, like how they grow it. If there's any special way that they grow it, if it's a fruit or vegetable, if they have like a good recipe they use to prepare it.
5: In the past normally have a, um, some like keynote speaker uh, of sorts that can kind of, you know, have a relevant conversation to, to start. And so this year we're going to try to move away from that and make it a little more uh, involved across the whole room. So in the past, if you've been, you know, the seed swap is in this kind, in this room on the side of the uh, fellowship hall of the church that we're at. Um, we're going to expand that out into the broader room and really try to engage more conversation uh, around the swap itself. Um, obviously, the seed bank will be on hand and they're just rich with stories and information and advice. Um, and so they'll be offering some of that. Um, and, but the idea is to open the floor up in kind of an open mic situation to where, you know, if you've brought seed, we really want you to come and, you know, tell us about it, right? Because those conversations are happening every year, right? Um, one-on-one in that room. And so now we're just trying to, to make it a bigger part of the event.
3: Do uh, either of you have a seed story you'd like to share?
4: Well, I have, I do have a seed story. It's not a seed that I've grown over the years, but it's it's significant. It's just become a really special plant that I love seeing every summer. But I uh, found some maypop in my mother in law's field next to her house. So, you know the maypops? <laughs> uh-huh. that, yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I found a dried up maypop and um, I brought it home and I tried to germinate it and it was taken a while it was taken a, a few weeks and i was like well this probably isn't going to germinate but one day it finally popped out of the of the of the soil and i was really excited <laughs> about that um and so i i planted it and um so it has these well another name for may is passion flower so it has those beautiful white and purple flowers um, but the biggest thing that I've really enjoyed is um, the butterflies that it attracts every summer.
3: It's a host plant. Yeah, it's a host yeah. plant
4: for the Gulf fritillary. So we have tons of Gulf fritillaries and um, just tons of the little caterpillars, these little orange, black, spiny caterpillars. Um, but then we end up with lots of their little cocoons like all over our porch and the side of our house. And so I just love watching them make their cocoon and then like checking on them every day to see if they're going to hatch and if I ever catch one hatching it's just it's really cool to see so that's that's I mean I only have been growing that for a year or two years maybe but it's become really special to me so
3: and finally keeping with our theme of um, a clean slate anything new going to be added to your family garden this week, or anything Hmm. special you're like I'm going to plant this this year, oh my they're gosh. both thinking,
5: listeners. They're, they're, they're <laughs> deep in thought. <laughs> so I, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the tomato that I that I got out of oh, the box. Oh, was a pineapple. pineapple? Pineapple tomato? Tomato? Yeah. I'm try I have not that. heard of that. Really. I, I love. So funny story. In my entire life, I hated tomatoes. Did not like them. The I mean, just the, the I, re, I was repulsed by tomatoes. And even when I got into garden, I would grow them, but I wouldn't eat them. And a couple years ago. <laughs> We were at a, a farmer's market because we used to try and sell a little bit here and there. And I was just so f- famished. I was starving. And the only thing I had on the table was tomatoes, Roma tomatoes. And so I just started eating Roma tomatoes. And it just somehow it clicked. And I've been a, like a massive tomato fan ever since. Like I can't get enough tomatoes.
3: So these pineapple tomatoes, is this something you've eaten before? Or you're just like, I
5: don't know what the heck that is. I, it was it's a, it's a It's an interesting heirloom. So Botanical Interest is a seed company that donates to the swap. And so, you know... Unofficially, Mary and I kind of get first dibs at looking at through the seeds. <laughs> we have to sort through things. We have yeah. to see exactly. Yeah. We can't, you know, we don't want bad things to exactly. come in. We pull a Quality a control. A few, you know. a few exactly. Out. So that's one of those I was like, oh, this is really neat. I haven't seen this before. And it, it's like a, a light, kind of yellowy red. And so it looks, I think it's along the same lines as the Mortgage Lifter, which is one of my favorites. So I'm excited about that.
4: I'm actually going to grow um, some Hopi sunflower seeds, sunflower plants oh, this very year. Cool. Yeah, because the seeds can be used for a plant or a a dye on fabric. So that's something I'm going to be growing for the first time.
3: So people going to the seed swap for the first time, uh, and this is Friday night beginning at 6 o'clock in downtown Huntsville at Church of the Nativity. Um, People going for their first time, what can they expect? Any, Any advice for them?
4: I would um,
5: say the show
3: up early.
4: Oh yes.
5: Well, show up at six. Show well, up yeah, at six. Doors up. open at six. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Not we're, not, early. we're not ready, but the um yeah show up if you want food um and and participate you know like it's it is um it it does get packed um and if you're you know I think some people actually come swap their seeds and leave it's just because it's like this is you know it's a lot a if lot, you're if yeah. you're introverted and don't like big crowds uh, yes. you know mm-hmm. kind of come in you can come in early and it's it's not as it's not as much but um. I don't know. I think the advice is, you know, just, I mean,
4: just enjoy yourself. It's fun. It's fun to be around like-minded people and to share seeds. Thinking about adding on to what you
0: already grow? The 8th Annual Community Seed Swap is Friday, January 31st at 6 p.m. at the Church of the Nativity in downtown Huntsville. Details on the Tennessee Valley Community Garden Facebook page. Next up on the Public Radio Hour, here on 89.3 Huntsville, another green initiative in Huntsville, changing the way our community thinks about recycling. Don't change that dial.
5: Independent Musical Productions' latest musical, The Bridges of Madison County, tells of the love affair between an Iowa housewife and a traveling photographer. This Friday in the 11 o'clock hour of Morning Blend, I'll be speaking with Jim Wood and Vivian Atkins about this romantic show. I'll be taking your requests, too. I'm Jenny Kennedy. Hope you can join me.
0: Come on, children, and climb in the backseat. Good evening, and welcome to the Public Radio Hour. I'm your host tonight, Katie Ganaway. Tonight, we're bringing you stories from around the Tennessee Valley of folks looking to wipe their slates clean and that includes the people helping them. Take Bio 1 Huntsville, for instance. In the light of a sudden family tragedy, owner Jake Snavely knows the last thing the loved ones of the deceased want to do is clean up the remains of such a devastating event. Snavely's crew specializes in this arena, among an umbrella of additional extreme cleaning services. You specialize in deep cleaning of all kinds, but the number one service seems to be hoarding cleanup. Is that right?
2: That's right. Yeah. Number one would be hoarding, but we do a lot of crime and trauma scene as well, too.
0: Let's focus on the hoarding aspect of it for for now. So everybody is coming out of the holiday season. It's a brand new year, and a lot of people are purging their junk, so to speak. But there are those folks who like to hang on to everything, and that can pile up and affect themselves and their loved ones. So... Can you talk about the challenges that come with that, that you you hear about all the time?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Every situation and property and family that we come across is totally different. We do jobs that are anywhere from minor junk removal, someone wants their garage cleaned out, to a big, giant hoarding cleanup job where it's floor to ceiling. You know, I would say that nine times out of 10, especially with the hoarding, there's a mental health aspect that's involved with it. So getting the family and the hoarder themselves kind of on board is kind of a challenge. So we try to not pressure them. You know, we try to go as slow as we can. And it's usually the family members like the parents or the siblings or even the neighbors sometimes that kind of help facilitate us starting the job.
0: When would you say is the right time for that family member, that concerned family member to step up and say, hey, we need
2: help? It's hard to say because in some situations they – will call us when there's hardly even an issue, in our opinion, just kind of based on other things that we've seen. But more often than not, there's usually some sort of catalyst that makes them say, you know what, enough is enough. You have to get help. A lot of times the people, the hoarders are elderly. So sometimes they'll trip and fall, injure themselves in the home. Sometimes their health will just decline. And usually that's because of the state that the property is in. Um, Sometimes it's a pest issue, like there's lots of rats or roaches, cats, The feces and stuff that come with the cats, snakes, and usually the sight of that type of stuff will kind of make them say, you know what, we got to call a professional. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: You know, a lot of people watch TV shows and YouTube videos that focus on that topic. Yeah. And I wonder, in your opinion, from what you've seen personally, do you think that that's an accurate depiction or do you think it's more of a sensationalized
2: thing? There are parts of it that are accurate. But like any reality show, it's definitely sensationalized. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think and well, can't give any names out or anything like that. But I have heard um, from some people that have been on the show and companies that have been on the show that the producers will try to find kind of the most extreme scenarios. And whether or not that's a good thing, they're kind of showing maybe something that is not the most normal situation. But then again, I've seen some here in Huntsville even that have been a lot more extreme than I've seen on TV. So I think the way that we go about it, the way that we do our cleanup is a little bit more efficient than is shown on TV. But yeah, I guess it's accurate to a degree.
0: Where would you say folks should turn if they are looking to understand that sort of situation better, a hoarding situation in real life?
2: That's the challenge that we have. To reach these people who are afflicted with hoarding personally is really hard to do. So what we try to do is reach out to a lot of therapists, especially those in town that kind of focus on people who are hoarders or types of OCD. And I would say, you know, try to go get help, uh, whether it's the hoarder themselves or even their family. Like, hey, try to recommend bringing them to a therapist or a psychologist or psychiatrist or counselor, whoever. You know, there's a lot of blogs, a lot of resources. Our website has resources on things that you can do to prepare. But other than that, I mean, it's one of those areas of – the world that is, there's not really like a, a lane. No, there's really not. And that's why that, you know, that's one of the reasons why I started this because there's a lot of people that we can help. And, you know, a, a psychologist and therapist, they're great. They can kind of help them overcome it, but ultimately, they're not the ones that are going to help them clean out the house.
0: Let's talk about the stigma around quarters. Sure. How would you say folks perceive quarters in this day and age?
2: I would say because of the reality TV shows, I think that people are a little bit more open-minded now than maybe they were 10 years ago, I think your average person is going to look at that hoarding situation and gasp and think like, you know, how on God's earth can someone live like that? Really, it's a mental health thing. It's it's just educating the public about, you know, it's not like just pure laziness that they're doing this. It's a mental health thing. And more often than not, there's usually an event in the person's life that kind of sets them off. So what we've noticed is especially with the elderly people, a lot of the times one of the spouses passes away or is afflicted with some sort of debilitating illness, and that causes the other spouse, the surviving spouse, to kind of regress and not want to leave the house and turn to hoarding. And I'm not an expert in mental health issues at all, but I think in getting the public to realize that it's not a bunch of crazy people, it's an actual problem, and um, that they should get them you know, correct mental help and then ultimately our help that they need and deserve.
0: Now, when it comes to that sort of help, it's a professional service and it requires a lot of dedication and energy on y'all's part, that comes with a financial cost. It does. And I wonder, how are you able to work with people who may not have the funds to afford that sort of thing?
2: Homeowner's insurance Mm -hmm. for a lot of our other stuff like the crime and trauma scene cleanup, the mm-hmm. homeowner's insurance will usually always cover it. With hoarding, it's very rarely that it does unless there's some sort of biohazard or something involved within it. But we always go into the situation assuming that the homeowner's insurance won't because we don't want to tell a family that, oh, yeah, yeah, it'll be included when they're right. stuck with a big bill at the end. You know, What we try to do is we try to be as fair as we can. And that's kind of been my whole thing for growing this business is, you know, a lot of families will get two, three, four bids um, from different companies. And we're almost always beating them out because we're, I don't want to say we're the cheapest, but we want to try to help as many people as we can. And a lot of times the family will pitch in. So mom, dad, sister, brother, the children will kind of pitch in to help, whether it's financially or sometimes even help us, you know, go through the items. So we don't have to spend time, you know, kind of categorizing things and this and that. And one of the things we do too is we just had one actually in Florence, Alabama. It was a situation where the mom had a really bad mental illness. She was – basically it was like final stage of dementia. And they totally couldn't afford it. And she said, you know, can you set us up on a payment plan type thing? And it's not something we do often. Um, but I said, you know what? We do want to help you do it. They really had no other resource, especially out there. It was a very rural area of Lauderdale County. So we said, yeah, sure.
0: Besides hoarding, you do provide, like you said, uh, crime scene, trauma cleanup, things like that. That would mean that you work with law enforcement, local law enforcement. Could you talk about how that sort of partnership may affect your life making you on call as well um, whenever something happens that you have to come in and help clean up.
2: So going back to law enforcement, we try to reach out to them as much as we can. Mm -hmm. Um, Huntsville PD has been great. You know, Madison County Sheriff and all the surrounding counties and, um, you know, police departments as well, too. Uh, We try to just let them know who we are to kind of educate them on our process and what we do and educate them on the fact that, you know, when they leave a scene where there's a type of like, Post mortem cleanup that has to be done, that they realize that you know, the family is ultimately responsible for cleaning it up, but that it's usually covered by insurance. So why compound that trauma on top of trauma for the family? And a lot of the police officers we spoke to, they're like, "Well, we didn't know that." Yeah, they call us the last responders. So <laughs> the last <responder. laughs> Yeah, so it's kind of funny, you know. And uh, <laughs> but we do uh, get calls, you know, two a.m., three a.m. You know, a lot of the times, though, there's not a very strong sense of emergency with our cleanup because sometimes investigators have to finish their investigation. That usually doesn't take place at 3 a.m., but we had a situation where an elderly man tripped down the basement stairs, passed away, and the whole family was over for the holiday, and they wanted that cleaned up ASAP. So we were out there in 30 minutes and got it done for them.
0: For you personally, do you feel that's sort of a taxing aspect of your
2: job? It is challenging, you know. Um, before I got into this, though, I was a realtor for 13 years. Right. And I was essentially on call all the time then, too. Maybe not 3 a.m., but I would get the texts and the calls and the emails all the time. I had to respond. And so it's something that I'm, I'm used to. And, you know, my other employees, I'm trying to train them on how to do it. And, yeah, it's, it's challenging, but it's part of the job and it's worth it.
0: When someone decides they want to get into this business, what sort of requirements are there for them to do so? What, what sort of experiences do they need to be taking into this except for maybe a strong stomach? Well,
2: <laughs> so there's – I'll break that down into two parts. So in, in terms of like the licensing and the, the state and federal requirements, and then there's just the personal requirements that I would say or at least recommendations that you would need. So like you said, strong stomach for sure. Um, a sense of empathy. Uh, you, you need to be a people person. You need to know how to accurately communicate with others and just show your support rather than being just a business person and saying, let me just clean this up for you and get out of there. You know, in terms of licensing, I mean, Alabama has a couple of things they require. So does the federal. You know, there's OSHA, Occupational Safety Hazard. Um, you have to go through some training with that, with bloodborne pathogens and just how to wear the proper PPE. Um, you have to learn about our chemicals and just have to have to learn the the dangers of that, how to use them correctly, how to clean up correctly, where to dump the biohazardous waste. You know, you have to get certain inoculations for things like we do ancillary services like mold remediation. We're working on meth lab cleanup. So those are two different things that we have to do and educate ourselves mm-hmm. with like 40-hour hazwoper class, a 40- or 80-hour OSHA class, um, what, a, what
0: is hazwapper? I'm sorry.
2: Hazwapper is kind of a general occupational safety hazard class okay. that you take for how to handle biohazards and hazardous materials. Um, so anything from like, for example, we can clean up tear gas. We can clean up various types of drugs and needles and blood and bodily fluids and things like that. And you have to know what the dangers are of going into that because even with your full protective equipment on with your suit respirator, gloves, double gloves, booties, you name it, there's still things that can hurt you, like a needle or, you know, if you just don't have your mask on right, if you're not properly fit tested for your respirator. So there's a bunch of little things you got to go into. And I have to make sure my employees are also protected against these things or else it's on me.
0: Under the big umbrella of services that you offer, such as uh, over... I've read it was odor removal, decomposition, cleanup, things like that. In your opinion, which is the hardest cleanup to carry out?
2: That's a tough one. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that there are a couple that are hard in different ways. Okay, so a hoarding job is very physically demanding. It is just pure hard labor Mm -hmm. for sometimes a full day, two days, three days, four days, a week. So that's hard in that respect. But it doesn't take much mental energy once you know what you're doing. To me, the toughest would be the crime scenes and death scenes when we know about it going into it. Most of the time, I try not to find out too much. But ultimately, we're going to find out with law enforcement. But if it's something where it's the death of a child or some sort of murder or something, and you know, it's kind of emotionally taxing on you while you're doing the cleanup, but you have to try to not think about it and think of it as just a job. Um, Obviously, you know, interact with the grieving families and all of that, but you can't let it get in your head too much or else you're not going to clean thoroughly. So I would say hoarding is tough physically, but those homicide, suicide jobs are probably the toughest, especially when the decomposition is involved. Because not only do you have that emotional part, but then with that type of bodily fluid, you're taking out walls, floors, baseboards, and you're you're going layer by layer. So it's very detailed and sometimes it takes a long time and it's also physically challenging too.
0: This is such a heavy load to carry every single day. Um, It makes me wonder how you decided to get into this profession because you said you used to be a real estate broker. Yeah. Um, So what sort of led you into this field?
2: It was kind of by chance at first. It wasn't something that I dreamed about. But the opportunity came up when I was researching other businesses to start and operate. Real estate was one of those jobs where I just wasn't, my heart wasn't in it anymore. And, you know, a lot of the other people in Bio One that own the other franchises are saying, you know, it is so rewarding, um, just the feeling that you get for helping families out. It's a very strange way to help people, but it's one of those things that they'll never forget you. And one of the very first jobs we had was unattended death. It was an elderly person. And just the... Th- the thank yous and the Christmas cards we got afterwards and the correspondence with the, with the widow has just been fantastic.
0: Innately, it sounds like with your profession, you are very involved in this community. Yeah. When you're not doing your job, how else are you involved in the community?
2: We do things to kind of give back. Back in November, we did, um, we sponsored a 5k run against violence that took place uh, downtown. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. Um, that was put on by the Homicide Survivors Program and JML, and it was really, really cool. And we try to kind of host things, sponsor things like that as much as possible. But other than that, um, I'm pretty preoccupied with my four year old and my two year old girls at home. <laughs> <laughs> They're a lot of work. <laughs> you know, it's good work though. <laughs>
0: You can check out more information about Bio 1 Huntsville at bio1huntsville.com, and you can call 256-677-6111. For the last 31 years, the Partnership for a Drug-Free Community in Huntsville has worked to educate the public about drug abuse prevention. Now they're launching a new free service that will take their mission one step further, matching folks in our community with the treatment they need. I visited the new Recovery Resource Hub, where we first meet someone who has walked the walk.
6: Took a drink one day, and... Next thing you know, every opportunity that I got, because I was being sneaky whenever I took that drink, and then every opportunity that I got from there, I was sneaking and drinking, and it became the norm.
0: That's Alan Burnett. He says back then he felt those vices helped him escape a home where domestic abuse between his parents was common, along with alcoholism. As he entered his adult years, he was caught, and often.
6: The next thing you know, I started associating the drinking with smoking weed and cigarettes, and 1988, when I was in college, I was introduced to crack cocaine, and I struggled with that for about 18 years.
0: One day, a judge offered him two choices, jail or a recovery program through the court.
6: Started thinking differently, um, and while I was in jail, I started building a relationship with God, which helped me to build that relationship with myself. And whenever I started doing that, I started freeing up. That disease started to lose its power. And I started speaking and talking more and more about where I've been.
0: Burnett is now a peer support specialist in his hometown of Winchester in Franklin County, Tennessee. His resume is pretty impressive as he travels all over the country to tell his story. Now he can add to his list consultant for a partnership for a drug-free Communities' new recovery resource hub. There, he'll share his experiences with anyone looking for help.
1: Uh, We have desks for our certified peer support specialists who are going to be working in and out of here. They're probably not going to be in here a whole lot because they're going to be out in the field actually meeting with people.
0: Wendy Reeves is Interim Executive Director of Partnership for a Drug-Free Community. The space she's walking through is slated to open its doors to the public in February. Reeves says the hub will act as a conduit of information, offering a safe place to seek help in treating substance abuse and mental health issues. If combined, that's known as a dual diagnosis. The hub will be unique. Since some of their peer support specialists and consultants have been where walk-ins are now, they're more likely to stick around and talk things through with someone like Burnett.
1: We also have this other office that you see here, this is going to be where our qualified substance abuse professionals, they are master level social workers, who will be performing a stated assessment to determine the level of care that people may need.
0: The hub's peers will cut out hours of wasted time searching the internet for a solution, which could otherwise delay treatment opportunities. When they walk out of the building, it's totally up to that individual whether they utilize the personalized information. Provided to them.
1: You can't make anyone go into treatment. You know, it may be someone may come in for an assessment and they may not be ready. We're not here to force anyone. We're here as a resource.
0: While they won't push people into getting the help they seek, there is a small window of hope for each individual as they risk falling back into old habits. If that window closes, people just give up. Therefore, she and her colleagues want to do everything
1: they can to find and vet a variety of resources. They're going to go to each one of these facilities and see that it is an actual facility. What the people that work there are like, you know, are they accredited? We want to be sure that the places that we're referring people to are legitimate good places for them to go. Just because someone makes a choice when they're young or makes a choice at
0: one time, does not need to determine the rest of their life. That's Ann Light, a former Huntsville City Attorney's Office worker, now the interim associate director with Partnership. Light has lived in Huntsville for 30 years, and at Partnership, she has seen her share of recovery success stories throughout the years. She's also seen treatment denied to teens and adults, whose parents and siblings are embarrassed and deny that their loved one is suffering from addiction or mental illness. This has become such an epidemic within our community, and it touches everyone. While there's such a stigma that is associated with substance use disorder, families tend to try to hide the fact that they're dealing with this. Reeves says she projects by next year, the new hub will have referred 750 individuals in Huntsville and Madison County to treatment programs that work for them. Burnett says he's been clean for the past 13 years, and he's created a new motto to live by.
6: And it's called Recovery is the New High. Being able to give back, that's what true recovery is to me. It's being able to give back what's been given to you.
0: For 89.3 Huntsville, I'm Katie Ganaway. The Recovery Resource Hub officially opens its doors February 3rd. You can reach out to access this service by dialing the Partnerships office Monday through Friday from 9.30 to 4.30 at 256-539-7339. If you need help outside their office hours, you can always call their 24-7 state hotline at 844-307-1760. This is 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. And finally, we meet Doc Holliday, the executive director of Huntsville Solid Waste Disposal Authority. The company ended its partnership with Republic Services last year and started a new service, forming the Recycling Alliance of North Alabama. Holliday rates Huntsville and Madison County fairly high on the scale of good recycling habits.
7: We've had in the new program over 65,000 households uh, that had signed up before the end of the year. And we have another 4,000 that had actually signed up, and we hadn't been able to get containers to yet. So we hadn't issued them their cards. So we're, we're looking at roughly 70,000 people that, that have uh, signed up to, to be a part of the program in less than six months. And we compare that to what we had under the old program, where our best guess based on audits and looking at the difference in set-out rates and participation rates is around 41,000 households were participating in the program our participation is way up. Our tonnages are way up. So the last month in the old program, we collected in July around 448 tons of recyclable material. In December of this year, we collected right at 700 tons of recyclable material. And so uh, out of those 65,400 households that were eligible for participation in the program by opting in, of them actually rolled their cart out to the street in December. And so we think it's fantastic. Uh, the, the, The commodities we get, so the items you place in your cart, we call them commodities because that's what happens. They're sorted and they're actually sold to market. And so one thing you always worry about is what they call contamination rates. And so nationally, contamination rates are probably going through a materials recovery facility about 30%. Uh, our recyclables have been very clean our, our processor actually estimates that the uh, contaminants we get are closer to 10 percent so we've got a lot of people putting out more material than ever before but it's not just more material they're putting out the right kinds of material mm-hmm.
0: through the new program how are you sort of working to change the way people think about recycling this year
7: and it's particularly hard because over time the lines got fuzzy about what should go in my recycling container and what shouldn't so when we first rolled the program out a lot of our citizens thought that we had totally changed what we took in the program and the fact of the matter is we made some minor changes not very big and so those changes were primarily household batteries and used motor oil that we used to collect curbside and the other was aerosol cans And so before we rolled the program out, we opened a new facility that's really state-of-the-art. It's located at 1,055, a cleaner way, and we're open 7 to 5, Monday through Friday, for all residents. And so it's as far on a cleaner way as you can go south, and it's the last building on the east side, and you just drive through the building. We take everything we've always taken on that first Saturday of the month. So we take paints and pesticides, electronics used, electronics Acids, bases, just all the things we've normally done, and in fact, uh, last year we had a good year with the program. So outside of that, we really didn't change the curbside program. But what happened was, was people had put some items in their their old eighteen gallon bins that weren't part of our programs. They were not one and two narrow neck plastic bottles. And they when ma- you
0: say narrow neck plastic bottles, can you describe what that means?
7: We need the neck to be smaller than the base of the container. So it it leads you to a lot of things that you know are bottles. So it's a lot of, uh, whether it's a soda bottle or whether it's a water bottle, laundry detergent bottle, uh, those are the things you normally think about.
0: Talking about your team, the people who sort through the, the recyclables, the people who drive the trucks, has life become easier for them? Have you heard that from them since the change?
7: I know the wear and tear on the drivers is less. We had, in some cases, individuals getting in and out of a truck but between 500 and 700 times a day. So they're walking down two or three steps, picking something up, mm-hmm. and, and then emptying it. And so what we started having was uh, workman's comp claims uh, that were associated with, with uh, ankles and knees and shoulders from, from, from emptying the containers. And so from that standpoint, our drivers are not subjected to the same physical demands of the other. Uh, on the, the processing line, you know, the, the biggest thing we continue to get from time to time is is individuals that are well-intentioned, that, that they, they've sorted stuff in their house and they've put all the right commodities outside, and they get to the very last step and they've got them in a plastic bag. And what we ask people to do is— is to empty them out of the bag because as they come down on that conveyor belt on the assembly line you've got an individual that doesn't know what's in there and you're asking them to trust that they can rip the bag open and there'll be nothing sharp or nothing harmful in there and so a lot of times uh, the workman's comp uh, insurer associated with those people and the safety officers say look if it's in a bag just let it pass through and so you may have things that Traditionally, you've recycled that we really would like to recover and actually use as a commodity that may pass through because nobody opens that bag. And so we just ask you to empty those out loosely into the container.
0: Let's talk about the environmental impact on our community. What sort of changes have you seen there?
7: So let's start with the fact that these containers have a lid. So I'm seeing a lot less litter in neighborhoods and along roadsides. And the other is, is is the commodities are staying dry, particularly the, uh, the, the uh, fiber-type products. So it makes it easier to sort so that we know they get recycled because some, sometimes if you have just a wet bell of something, it's just wet. So I'd start there. The other is, is, is remember, we expanded this program. So we cover about twice the area that we used to, but we're covering it once a month a, as opposed to weekly. So we're not burning as much fuel trying to collect the commodities as we used to. We also have done what we call some smart routing, and that is is one of the reasons we wanted people to opt in. Under the old program, we went down every street that was in the service area, whether anybody on that street had ever set a container out or not. Under this program, because you have to, to sign up, then we actually know the address and we actually just route trucks to go down streets where people have containers. You know, it doesn't mean that that every month everybody that signed up for a cart will roll their cart to the street. But we're just going down streets where they've signed up and they have a cart and there's a higher likelihood because they signed up to get it that they'll roll the cart out to the street.
0: And for those who have opted to get a cart and have not received them, what would you tell them? Do they need to reach out to you and call you or...?
7: We've had a list that's been going for a a little over two months. Uh, It it would be called Phase 4. I think it started in mid to to late October. Mm -hmm. We are scrubbing that list today. Scrubbing means that that you'll find out some people have registered for carts that are maybe not in the service area. Uh, You'll find out maybe in some cases it's a business, and and our program primarily just reaches uh, residential, single-family residential units that get garbage and trash service from the city for the city of Madison or Madison County. And then there'll be sometimes where two adults in a household maybe both thought about recycling on a different day and ordered. And so they've asked for multiple carts. So we scrub that list to get down to the people that are eligible to have a cart. And we should start the delivery of those phase four carts next week. And so it'll probably take us about two weeks to get all of them delivered. Uh, Next and,
0: week being the beginning of February, sort r- of. Right, right. Mm-hmm. The
7: beginning of February. So mm-hmm. if by mid-February, if you've already signed up and you don't have that that cart, please contact our office. You can either call or you can send us an email. Mm-hmm. But but either way, and let's check and see what's going on.
0: And talking about you know things that you can't take on your website, you do have a list of links where people can go find out locally where they can drop off things that. Reina and SWDA do not take?
7: We're not equipped right now to have a drop-off service. And so what we've tried to do is, is locate some vendors that take those items. So the things we've been able to locate it are paper and cardboard. So there are two facilities in town. One of them is West Rock, who has a facility up on Wholesale Drive, and the other is South Central Recycling, who has a facility on Vermont Road. And they'll both in take, Huntsville. Right, both in Huntsville, and they'll take you know, paper products, so whether it's cardboard or paper or any other products. Metals, there, there's a, a facility located at the extreme north end of Holmes Avenue, uh, and it's called SA Metals, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they accept any kind of metals you have. What we haven't been able to locate right now is... is the glass. Uh, it's plastics and glass. Okay. So So...
0: That's a big uh, issue that I've heard from a lot of my friends and coworkers. you know, saying I want to know where to take my glass because I don't want to just throw it away.
7: So the closest facility that really takes glass is a little bit over 180 miles away one way. And, and so there, there are more issues involved in glass and about bulking it and getting it transported and making sure the way you get it there is actually green. And so there's some challenges there. You know, we we continue to try to identify anyone locally that that is willing to do that. But so far, we've been unsuccessful in finding someone that can use it locally so that there's something more sustainable to do with it.
0: Switching topics to the waste energy facility that you have. You are able to, you said, grind mesh and concrete and light bulbs and then reuse that as something completely different.
7: Yeah, so, so we've got about three topics there together, so I'll separate okay. them out as we okay. talk to them because I, I went through very quickly what we do. Right. So, you know, uh, one of the things we have here in Huntsville that a lot of communities don't, in fact, they're, they're uh, you know, really close to 85 communities in, the, uh, in North America that have it is we have a waste energy facility. Mm-hmm. So we actually combust uh, common household garbage and produce steam that we export to Redstone Arsenal. Uh, and so last year we, we combusted about 175,000 tons of, of garbage, uh, produced steam that Redstone Arsenal uses for some heating, cooling, and some hot water makeup, a little wonder, bit of industrial processing.
0: I wonder how that steam is packaged and delivered. That seems it's kind well, it of it goes funny through to big pipes.
7: Okay. People look at those big silver pipes out mm-hmm. on Redstone Arsenal and they say, I wonder what that is. Well, that's actually the steam lines that, <laughs> that go to the different facilities. And so we produce steam for them. And out of that, you end up with a combustor ash. So two things really happen with the combustor ash. So one of them is, is uh, the first thing we do is, is we take them over to the landfill, and we actually use a portable metals recovery facility over there. And so we recover the ferrous and the non-ferrous metals out of that combustor ash. So last year we, we recovered about 2,460 tons of metals out of that combustor ash and then out of the leftover ash that if you have a a, an msw landfill which is a municipal solid waste landfill then, then you have to cover the materials that are placed in it every day with daily cover and so we actually use that old combustor ash as daily cover rather than using dirt in addition to that you know we we did talk about we've actually started a concrete grinding operation so we take old concrete that's been demolitioned from other places and we grind it up and then we reuse the concrete. So last year we ground up a little over 17,000 tons of of old concrete. Uh, we've used it in a variety of applications. Some of it is as we actually use uh, some of it to extend the road down on a cleaner way where that new household hazardous waste facility is. Some of it actually went up under uh, the foundation or the pad of that uh, new household hazardous waste building. Uh, Some of it was ground up and went uh, up under the parking garage that's now uh, in the same complex uh, where the development on Bob Wallace is that has Chewies and all. And and so, you know, it's a little bit higher on that EPA uh, hierarchy and pyramid we talked about a little bit earlier. We're we're at the reuse stage rather than the recycle stage. Mm -hmm. So we're doing a lot more than just the curbside program. People look Mm -hmm. at curbside and think that's all the recycling efforts. But if you look, energy recovery that we do at the Waste Energy Facility, that's above landfilling. So as you go down that that that, that pyramid, it's uh, reduce, reuse, recycle, energy recovery, and then landfilling. And, and so we're doing a lot to, to try to make this a more environmentally friendly community.
0: So going back to Raina, are there any plans that you might have to expand Recycling pickup to businesses, or maybe some sort of initiatives going to local apartments, or because those are some places that I would I would think are a little bit difficult to recycle.
7: Traditionally, uh, we've left the commercial application. So whether it's a business or whether it's uh, an apartment complex, we followed the same model really that the cities and the counties have followed, and that's to provide service. To the single-family residential households, and the commercial establishments, whether it's apartments or whether it's businesses, actually contract with private vendors to do that. So, so I don't, you know, see that part that that, that we would be doing that. Uh, the other is is uh, uh, although it seems unlikely, actually, the 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 recycling stream you get from those tends to be a little bit different than what you get in a household setting. You know, but but hopefully, you know that we'll find some solutions as a community long term. I know that that the recycling closing has impacted all of those entities, and we right. continue to, to to you know be cognizant of that and the impact it has, and try to at least start formulating some plans about how, as a community, that's addressed in the future.
0: As Holiday said, the next round of carts will roll out to residents in Madison County soon. If you still need that extra card a little faster, you can call 256-801-2278. And further information can be obtained by calling the Solid Waste Disposal Authority at 256-881-8700 and by visiting swdahsv.org. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Katie Gannaway. Thanks to Doc Holiday and the Solid Waste Disposal Authority, Jake Snavely and Bio One Huntsville, Brett Tannehill and the Tennessee Valley Community Garden Association, and all of the folks at Partnership for a Drug-Free Community. Binge past episodes of the Public Radio Hour in our online archives at WLRH.org. Click the Programs tab, then the Public Radio Hour. Well, it's time for us to hit the road, but we will be back with something shiny and new next Thursday night at 7 on 89.3 FM HD1. Good night, everybody.